Our text, as I said, is, is Ephesians chapter 1, and specifically verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. We're finishing up this evening Paul's opening eulogy. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. I'll read the text and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for your word, and specifically this evening we give you thanks for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Just the few weeks we've spent in this letter, we see how wonderfully rich is the theology that the apostle writes, and we understand it is for our benefit It is to instruct our hearts, and it is to be to the praise of your glory. We ask, as ever, that you would be working out these things in our lives, even this evening. May we be found as those who sing your praises, who live lives in honor of you because of the way you have blessed us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the goal is that we would bless God. Paul leads with that in verse 3, and that's been our, our banner over this text every week since. Paul desires, and God himself desires, that we would live lives that bless him. Last week I spoke briefly about the difficulties involved in simply dividing this text because of how dense and, and theologically rich it is. There are many ways in which the text could be divided. Uh, one layer that we see is the, is the progression of time. In Paul's theological uh, eulogy here, he talks about blessings beginning with before the foundation of the world, eternity past. He then thinks about our present realities, and then tonight he stretches forward to future realities, eternity future. I mentioned also the division within this text uh, that is very Trinitarian. Paul begins with the Father being the, the soul or the, the priority and focus there and then moves to Christ the Son and then this evening he brings the Holy Spirit in. So there's a Trinitarian division. There are yet more and they cause even more problems as you think through how to divide the, the thoughts and one of them would be Paul's use of the words in him. You notice in verse 3, he introduces us to the motif in Christ. Perhaps Paul's defining thought. Theologically, you go through the epistles. He writes in Christ everywhere. And after that, he keeps referring back to the reality of us being in Christ with the words in him. Verse 4, in him. Verse 7, in him. And then tonight, there are two in hymns, verse 11 and verse 13, which does create something of a problem. As I came to the text last Monday, I was looking at it thinking, so what should be 
our text for the sermon on Sunday evening. Should it be, verse 11 and 12, that is a unit of thought in and of itself. That's one of the in him statements here. Or could it be, verses 11 through 14, trying to get our arms around both of the in him statements, and I think that actually is the better division, because the content of each half complements the other. When you consider what Paul says in each of the in him statements in 11 through 14, he lays out two primary truths that complement one another. They are, in the first, that we have a guaranteed inheritance. In 11 through 12, Paul makes plain that we have an inheritance that is sure, guaranteed. He then says in 13 through 14 that that inheritance is testified to by the Holy Spirit. We may know of that inheritance and its certainty because of the Holy Witnesses, the Holy Spirit's witness in our life. And so you see, though certainly there are two thoughts here, both introduced by the words in Him, they complement one, one another, they go together. And I think the proper unit of thought is 11 through 14. Again, Paul's purpose in giving us these truths is that we would respond with praise to God's glory. He says that indeed in verse 12 and in verse 14. Before we jump in, I mentioned a few weeks ago in closing one evening that this is to be something of a discipline in your life. I suggested just a few comments in closing a few weeks ago that as we understand the logic of the text, bless God as he has blessed you. Bless God in response to the way he has blessed you. May your whole lives be to the praise of his glory. That's the argument in these verses. And I said just in closing, it is to be a discipline to pursue the way in which God has blessed you, to pursue an understanding of God's blessing in your life. And the reason I said that is because you understand the cares of the world are so great that they will flood in each and every day without you having to go and look for them. They will come to you. They are so great that they could very easily overwhelm you in such a way that you never really give thought to how God has blessed you. It could easily be that you, a Christian, redeemed by the blood of Christ, destined for glory, goes many days in your week without any real thoughts toward God. It could easily be that the cares of your life are so manifold so frequent, so ready to come in when you get up in the morning that you pass a whole day without any real consideration for the manner in which God has blessed you. And if that is true, then the result would be that you don't live your life to the praise of his glory. Because you haven't given thoughts to how he has blessed you, you are not responding in accordance with the logic of this text praising him in response. So it has to become something of a spiritual discipline. In some way, the practicalities of which you can figure out, in some way, 
you need to consider how you will stay your mind on the blessings that God has showered upon you. How will I fix my thoughts daily on the realities of my salvation, on the realities of who I am in Christ? How will I do that? How will I make time for it? How will I train my mind so as to consider these realities? Because if I don't, then I will not be living to the praise of his glory. As we finish this opening eulogy this evening, I want to stress that need. I want to stress that responsibility. Don't leave this text behind you without having asked the question of how you will consider consistently in your life the manner in which God has blessed you. Because only then will you be living in obedience to the text, namely responding with a blessing towards God. Now this evening, Paul gives more blessings. He's given us so many. He introduces us to the notion of an inheritance, an inheritance that is sure. In verse 11, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It is important to note that there is an interpretive issue right there in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So those words, have obtained an inheritance. Four words in the English. It's one word in the original language. And it's a very, very difficult word to interpret because it doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. We have a special name for these words. They occur only one time in the Bible. This would be one of those words. We can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. It's a a one-off. So that makes the, the act of understanding it very difficult because we don't have other texts by which we can compare this text. So what does it mean, this word? We actually have to go outside the Bible where we find uses of that word in other ancient writings. In other ancient writings, it seems to be that the notion is not so much to have obtained an inheritance, but to have been rendered an inheritance. So I brought with me my little legacy standard Bible this evening, and the folks, whoever they were that translated this, I think they got it right. (laughs) I have to say that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we also have been made an inheritance. We have been made an inheritance. I think that's closer to what Paul was intending here. However, with that being said, theologically... The difference between having been rendered an inheritance and receiving an inheritance is not all that huge. The difference between them is not all that significant. We have been rendered as an inheritance before God. We are his inheritance. And in so much as one day we'll be presented before him as that inheritance, on that day we will receive an inheritance. And there are other texts within the New Testament that speak about the fact of our receiving 
an inheritance. So, right now, I want to just preach to you both realities. I believe the text is leaning towards the notion of us being rendered in inheritance, but I want to explain to you theologically, by way of implication, the truth of both being rendered and receiving an inheritance. On the final day of salvation history, the saints will be presented before God. We'll stand before him and there will be a testimony of his work in our lives given that will result in his glory. The heavenly host will praise him as will we on that last day because we will have made it to the finish line. By his grace, by his grace we will be there. And the the fullness of our redemption will be made plain. We will be heralded on that last day as trophies of God's grace. It will be abundantly clear for everyone to see the work of the gospel in our lives in its fullest sense. And that will be God's inheritance. He will be most glorified on that last day as our salvation is seen before all. He will receive an inheritance. Now think about the fact that you would be counted an inheritance of an eternal holy God. That you would be labeled as his inheritance. Think about that and understand the electing, saving love that God has set upon you through Jesus Christ. At the same time, on that day, you will be receiving There'll be much praise given to God as you're declared to be his inheritance. And at the same time, you'll be receiving an inheritance. What will be that inheritance? I thought a lot about this this week. What will be our inheritance on that last day? Specifically, how can I boil it down? How can I summarize what will be our inheritance on that last day? I think my summary would be something like this. Our inheritance on the last day will be the fullness of the blessings of our salvation in Christ. Our inheritance on the last day will be the fullness of the blessings of salvation in Christ. So let me explain. Paul begins this text by saying... God has not withheld anything from you. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You have it all right now. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Yet, we don't see it fully. It hasn't been fully realized in our hearts. We are redeemed from our sin fully right now. But we don't see it as fully as we will see it on the last day because right now the flesh remains. We do keep sinning and so we don't see and appreciate and the redemption hasn't been fully realized as it will be on that last day. We are sons of God right now, fully He hasn't held this back. He hasn't given it to us in part. We are sons and daughters of the living God right now. But we don't see it 
in the way that we will see it on the last day because our vision remains somewhat clouded. We don't see the the full reality of our sonship right now as we will do on that last day when everything becomes abundantly clear. And so we could go on as Paul lists to us in Ephesians 1, what are our spiritual blessings? You understand we have them fully right now and yet on the last day there will be a fuller, greater realization of them. The fullness of our salvation blessings will be made manifest on that last day. It will be a wonderful day when we stand before Christ and we see him face to face. We are made like him because we see him. And we finally realize the magnitude of our redemption in Christ. We will praise Christ in new and greater ways on that last day because we will see more fully who we are in him. Now, as I tried to summarize what our inheritance will be on that last day, I made certain to say at the very end, in Christ. What will be our inheritance? It will be a realization of our salvation blessings in Christ. And the reason I labor that point is because the trap we can often fall into is to ponder heaven and all of its manifold benefits, but with no thought of Christ. We can look forward to heaven because of, fill in the blank, no sin, no tiredness, no aches and pains, no bad backs, no bad knees. We could go on. We could look forward to heaven for these reasons. And very easily, we can fall into the trap of looking forward to heaven for everything but the centerpiece. The greatest reality of heaven is that Jesus will be there. The greatest reality of our future glory is that we will be there with Christ. A realization of all of the benefits of salvation with Christ. He is the pinnacle of our inheritance. I recently heard the story that illustrated this point of a family that had gone overseas for some study. It was a a mother and a father and a young child. And they had moved from America to Europe so as to pursue some studies, the, the father that is. And shortly after they landed in Europe, they were called and notified that the mother's dad was sick. And that he was most likely going to pass away. So they quickly, they got on a plane and they flew back. And they realized that in going home, they were going home to say goodbye to the wife's father. And as the plane was coming down in America, the scenery was magnificent. Lots of green hills, lots of fields, wonderful blue sky. And the child, the young child was looking out of the window. And the mom leant across and she said, isn't it beautiful? She said, this is what heaven will be like, where Granda's going. And the child, with incredible perception, said, but Jesus isn't there. The greatest thing about our future glory is that we inherit Christ. Is that he will be there and we will be with him. 
That is the nature of our inheritance. Notice how Paul stresses the certainty of it. The way in which he stresses the certainty of it is to draw our attention to God himself who predestined this inheritance. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there again, we find this predestining language. We came across it earlier in this text, way up in verse 3 and 4. He talks about election and predestination. Again here, he's saying these things were set in place before the foundation of the world. You had nothing to do with this. Before you were, before you were, God had ordained your inheritance. It is all of his grace, and it is absolutely certain. If you think back to the evening when we looked at verses 3 through 5, one of the points of application that comes out of the truth of God's electing is the comfort it issues. If it weren't true that we were elected to salvation, we would be very, very nervous Christians. If, any way, if it in any way depended upon me, then how do I know that I haven't stuffed it up and lost it? But God says, I chose you from before the foundation of the world, and for that reason, you can be confident that you won't lose your salvation. I chose you and not you choosing me, and therefore you can't lose this. In the same way, in verse 11, I predestined your inheritance. So you can't squander it. You're not going to lose it. You're not going to forsake it because I chose that this would be the case for you before you were. And then, as if that were not enough, Paul labors the point again. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Two times Paul uses the word according, according to, And it is an emphatic way of stressing the certainty of our inheritance. According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. As if we didn't get the picture the first time when he says this was predestined, he then says, and the one that predestined is the God who works everything to the counsel of his will. So your inheritance in glory is sure. It's not going anywhere. You see how encouraging this text is if you would think upon these realities. And it's actually very easy to set your mind towards these realities if you follow Paul's logic. He is tracing a line from the reality of your inheritance to God's sovereignty. The purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Just ponder that reality. God causes the sun to rise in accordance with the purpose of his will. Nobody else tells the sun when to rise. God does, and he does it in accordance with the purpose of his will. God causes the wind to blow. No one else gets to tell the wind when to blow or where to blow. God alone does, and he does it in accordance with the purpose of his will. God tells the stars to shine. He sets them in place. He knows them by name. 
God and no one else. And he sets them where he does and they shine as they do in accordance with nothing else but the purpose of his will. You ponder the sovereign hand of God in everything. Every atom in the universe is oriented and is moving and is doing the thing that it does in accordance with the purpose of God's will. And as you ponder his sovereign hand around you in the world, allow your consideration of his sovereignty to lead your thoughts towards the certainty of your inheritance. My inheritance is not going anywhere. It is sure and it is certain because the one who ordained it is God Almighty who does everything according to the purpose of his will. Notice, this is to be to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, all of these things are so in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now I said this morning just how comfortable we are living in the West as Christians, just how comfortable our lives are. And the snare that that can become is that we think very little of heaven. Because we don't feel the need for that final manifestation of salvation. We don't feel on a daily basis the realities of life in a broken world, certainly not the way in which other Christians are today. And so our senses become numb. Our senses toward the realities of heaven become numb. We don't praise God as we ought for our internal inheritance, at least not as I imagine some Christians around the world are. The discipline is that we would be heavenly minded that we thank God for the level of comfort that he has afforded us, and yet we set our minds on the truth of heaven. I was so thankful for Joel's comment tonight. We need to sing more songs about heaven. We cannot afford to be occupied with that which is merely in front of us because it's not speaking eternal realities. You need to set your mind towards eternity future. Think about 10,000 years from now rather than the problem that sits five minutes in front of you. Be encouraged by setting your mind 10,000 years from now and knowing what will be true of you in that day rather than allowing your mind and your soul to be occupied with the problems of your circumstances that are but fleeting. Paul says these troubles are momentary momentary afflictions compared with the glory that is being worked out for us if our lives are to be to the praise of his glory. As the text tells us, if our lives are to be to the praise of his glory, then we must be those that are setting our minds habitually on the realities of our inheritance. And you can be sure that it is guaranteed because it is God who ordains it. Well, Paul moves on from there 
the second in him statement, in him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul moves on in his argument to now talk about the way in which that eternal inheritance is testified to us. How is it that we may know of it? It is sure, because God has ordained it. It is certain, because God has ordained it. But how may we know of it? And even there, God has not left us lacking. Paul says, God sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit. The sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit is but one of his many activities in the economy of the gospel. The Holy Spirit does many things in the believer's life. One of those things is to seal us. And the idea here of that word sealed is akin to the, to the wax seal that you get on a, a letter. Maybe not so much today, but in years previous, people would send a letter with a wax seal closing the envelope. It's the same idea here. The Holy Spirit has sealed the Christian so that this inheritance and the testimony of it cannot go away. It's sealed. What is it sealed with? Wonderfully, it is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the work of sealing, and the Holy Spirit is the seal. Paul is talking here about our reception of the Holy Spirit. Our reception of the Holy Spirit is the seal. The second you put your faith in Christ, the third member of the Godhead takes up residence inside you. Never, ever, ever to leave you. You've been sealed. The Holy Spirit in your life is not going anywhere. And then notice the particular work of the Spirit in view beyond the act of sealing is to provide the guarantee. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. This word is akin to the word of, of, of a pledge or a down payment. The Holy Spirit in us functions as a down payment testifying to future realities of things to come. One commentator says, it's as if Paul is telling us we have a slice of heaven inside of us. We have a slice of heaven inside of us speaking of future heavenly realities. As I read this text, I'm always reminded of an experience I had growing up that was somewhat akin to a, a testimony of future realities. My brother and I, on a Sunday afternoon, we would always go out with the soccer ball and kick it around in the nearby park, and we would, we would play there until it was dark. And in the winter months in the UK, you know, the, the dark comes early, around about four o'clock, and, and we would come home. Eric Liddell would not approve. He was a Sabbatarian, no soccer on Sundays. But we would go out on a Sunday afternoon, him and I, and we would kick this ball around until it was dark, and then we'd come home and we were just starving hungry. And every Sunday night in my house, we would have a, a roast dinner. That's what we call it, a roast chicken with carrots and roast potatoes and vegetables. And 
just about anything you can imagine, just a huge feast. And one thing that we had, the highlight of the meal for us, was something that we call Yorkshire puddings. Now, maybe some of you have heard of Yorkshire puddings. If you ever go to the UK, that's priority number one. (laughs) Find a Yorkshire pudding and eat it. You'll never want to leave. And, And my brother and I just loved these things. We loved them. And so we'd come in from from soccer and we'd say to my mum, can we have a Yorkshire pudding? And she'd say, dinner's not ready yet. You know, and dinner's maybe still an hour away and and we're going to die. Our stomachs are eating us from the inside. And we, please, can we have a Yorkshire pudding? And if we persisted long enough, she would take one from the tray and she would cut it in half and we would each get a bite of the Yorkshire pudding. And it was so good. In that moment, it was so good, but it paled in comparison to the feast that we would have later that evening. And in the same way, we have the Holy Spirit testifying right now to future realities. And life is good as a Christian. Life is so good because we have a slice of heaven inside of us. Our experience of life is so good, but just wait until that last day when the fullness of our salvation comes into view and we inherit Christ. The Holy Spirit is pushing us towards a consideration of such things. We are thinking right now about the reality of things yet to come. God has been so gracious to us so as to put the Holy Spirit in us in order to testify to these realities, but allow them to have their intended effect. Push your mind towards heaven and anticipate the return of Christ. Long for the return of Christ, knowing that as good as life is this day in Christ, oh, how good it will be on that last day. We are to live very much in a heavenly-minded way. Now, I want to be very specific about the manner in which the Holy Spirit gives us that testimony. How is it that we, we have that testimony? You see, there is some confusion about the work of the, the Holy Spirit in sealing us. You could go to certain books or even other churches that would teach that the Holy Spirit is not sealing everyone at the point of salvation. Some would teach that the Holy Spirit gives a second blessing. They would call it a higher blessing. Sometimes you hear people talk about a baptism of the Spirit or being slain in the Spirit. And what they create is a a two-tier Christianity. You've put your faith in Christ, that's wonderful. You've received the Holy Spirit to some degree, that's great, but you just need to be slain in the Spirit. You need to seek that higher blessing. And it's not biblical. It's not true. It's not justified by the biblical text. The truth of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that He comes to every believer at the moment of salvation And they are not lacking him in any respect. You have the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian. With that being said, your experience of his testimony may vary. 
your experience of the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning heaven may vary. The reason being because of the way in which the Holy Spirit works. The primary way in which the Holy Spirit works is in accordance with, in conjunction with, in partnership with the Word of God. It is no accident that Paul says here in verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. It's not an accident that as Paul brings the Holy Spirit into view, he does so right off the back of a mention of the text. Because that is the primary way in which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. You may have a different experience of the testimony of the Holy Spirit based upon your engagement with the Bible. If you are neglecting the Word of God in your life, I do not imagine that the Holy Spirit is testifying all that much to you concerning future realities. If you are found in this book, defined by this book, if your life is spent in this book, then the Holy Spirit is pleased to testify to you in accordance with the words that you're reading about future realities. That is how the Holy Spirit does his work. And I want to labor that because, again, we are so prone to fall into false thinking Namely, that the Holy Spirit works in this subjective manner. If I just sit and wait around, now the Holy Spirit will talk to me. What color socks shall I put on today? The Holy Spirit will tell me. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that the third member of the Trinity, dwelling inside of us, works in accordance with the Bible. So should you not be in the text every single day, open this book. Don't neglect it because you want the Holy Spirit to be testifying to you. You want him to be speaking to you eternal truths. You want him to encourage you in your present circumstances. You want the Holy Spirit to inform you as to your circumstances and how you best respond to them. So how do you do it? You read the text. And understand me, it is not that you necessarily have to go hunting for all of the texts in the Bible that specifically address the reality of heaven. I often say this when I gather with guys and we we seek to have a, a mutual sharpening of one another Let's study the Bible. What's the, what's the thing that brings us together? We happen to be elders, or, or this is a room full of deacons, or this is a, a room full of guys that like hunting. I mean, fill in the blank, right? So let's go find those verses. No, just read the text. Trust that it's going to feed you. You don't have to go and find all the texts that speak about being an elder for elders to be fed by the Word of God. You just have to open the book. You pray. God, as we come to your word right now, Holy Spirit, testify to us the truth. And then you read. And you read with a submissive and a soft heart and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do that work in you. And when he does, that is when your life will be lived to the praise of his glory. 
I started this evening by just reminding you that the pursuit of his praise in your life has to be a discipline. It has to be. It won't just happen organically because the cares of the world are so great. Your flesh still remains. So don't just tread water thinking this is going to be a reality in your life because it won't be. You have to pursue this in a disciplined way. I want my life to be to the praise of his glory. How? You have to be disciplined to open this book. And as you read Genesis through Revelation, I don't mind, just open it. As you read, you will see his glory. You will see how he has blessed you. And your heart will exult in praise towards God. I challenge you to not live a life to the praise of his glory if you are consistently in the Bible. If you are consistently in the Bible, watch your feet follow a path that is to the praise of his glory. Now, there, of course, there are, there are practicalities And there is help along the way. Would you disciple me? Would you help me think through this? Of course. That's why we are the body of Christ. But it starts here. You have to open this book and read yet again. Refresh your heart again to the manner in which God has blessed you. So that you and we would be to the praise of God of his glory. May that be a reality in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this tremendous opening to the letter to the Ephesians. It is so rich and we could spend so much more time here. Many more weeks we could spend considering the eternal realities that Paul has recorded concerning our salvation in Christ. We praise you this evening for the the truth of our inheritance. We have been rendered an inheritance before God. On that last day, he will claim us fully as his inheritance. Our minds can barely take it in. And equally, on that last day, we will receive an inheritance. We will be receiving a full realization of our salvation blessings with Christ at the center. Father, we praise you for the certainty of our inheritance. We marvel tonight that this was worked out before we even were predestined according to you, God, who works all things to the counsel of your will. We praise you for the certainty of our inheritance. And Father, we praise you this evening that there is a testimony of that inheritance from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. We're not lacking God is within us. And there is a testimony from him to our hearts concerning future realities. 
And the way in which it is worked out is primarily through the word. The Holy Spirit is pleased to testify to us in accordance with the Bible. So the practical implications are very, very clear. If we would live our lives to the praise of your glory, we must be people that are in this book. We must be in this book rehearsing the blessings of our salvation, delighting in the doctrines of the gospel, delighting in the person of Christ. Father, instruct our hearts towards this end. May we be found in this book and may the Holy Spirit testify to us of eternal realities, encouraging us, comforting us, rebuking us, instructing us so that our lives would be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.